This is Tending Seeds, a podcast about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm Sarah Schuster, and I'll be your host. Thanks for being here today. Hi, friends. How are you? It's the spring equinox today, and I'm so excited because it actually does look like spring outside. It's in the 60s today, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I am so happy. I really just can't get over it. Also, we have a wonderful full moon tonight. It's a super moon, a full moon in Libra. It was so beautiful last night. I know it's going to be beautiful as well tonight. Looking forward to maybe hanging out on the deck after the work for the day is done. I've been thinking a lot about the spring equinox, and I was looking back at some of my memories on different social media platforms, and I came across these envelopes that I had hand-stamped with the words spring dreams and these beautiful ferns. A few years back, we had done a spring equinox party at our house, and I made these envelopes as party favors for everyone, and I put in the envelopes little strips of paper that had wildflower seeds in it, and the idea was that you could write your intentions for the coming year or the coming season, and then plant those uh, pieces of paper and watch the flowers actually grow. And so I was thinking about that and just thinking about some of my goals for the coming season And I think when we start to reflect and to plan, which this is definitely a great time of year to do, I like to start with the end in mind. And what I mean by that is if you're going to start planning something now in the spring, think about what is it that you hope to be harvesting later on in the fall and work backwards from there and figure out the steps that you need to take in order to reach that goal. So for me, some of my main goals right now are obviously getting the farm up and running, finishing my herbal program, working on this podcast a whole bunch, and hopefully growing the audience for that, maybe bringing some other plant folks on to talk about different things that they're more experienced in than I am, and then also just continuing to build community here, hopefully maybe having some workshops or at least some get-togethers and things here out at the farm. In my head, I think I would love to do something for the summer solstice, maybe some sort of camp out here on the land but we'll just have to see what happens with that. It's funny, you know, we're still in the first year of, you know, living out here. And before we moved out here, we hosted events all the time. And we actually haven't hosted a major event since we moved out here. And so I really would like to change that because I love hosting. I love cooking for people. That's definitely one of my main love languages is shoving food in front of you that I made. So I haven't been able to do that in quite a while, and I'm really itching too, especially with spring being here. And so I would love to maybe do something around the summer solstice when hopefully the farm is in full bloom and there's lots of really great, exciting things to, you know, to show people when they get here. And also the house will hopefully be much closer to completion at that point, because right now I think I wouldn't really want a whole bunch of people traipsing around and seeing the unfinished projects we have. Anyway, so those are sort of some of my thoughts right now, looking at the spring equinox today. And hopefully you're getting a chance to do some relaxation as well. Maybe spend some time outdoors today, plant some seeds, either literally or figuratively, and figure out what it is you hope to be harvesting come the fall. And whatever it is, I hope you get it. All right, so going through some of our normal segments for today, things I want to talk about, starting with the farm. I'm still feeling kind of behind, but I'm actually feeling okay about it. Normally, I I think I should be kind of freaking out about where I'm at in terms of getting seeds and stuff started and planted, and I'm pretty behind. 
but I'm okay. Um, and part of that is because of going to organic grower school earlier this month. And one of the classes that I took was led by Jeff Poppin, who's also known as the Barefoot Farmer. He's based out of Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee. He did a really interesting class that I will talk more about later on. But the big thing he said, which really just relieved a lot of my stress and anxiety, was he was talking about the fact that they don't use any plastic on their farm. Um, They don't use any irrigation. There's no drip irrigation. There's no big hoop house. They don't use any plastic trays for seed starting and things like that. And so during the question section of the class at the end, I asked, you know, how are you getting your seeds started then? If you don't have a hoop house, do you have a greenhouse? What are you doing? Are you doing soil blocks instead of plastic trays? Because that's something I'm doing this year as well. And I'm really excited about, you know, what's the deal? How are you, you know, getting everything going if you're not using any sort of plastic? Um, Because obviously not using plastic is something I'm really interested in as well. And his response was, well, we just don't, you know, we don't start planting yet. We don't have a greenhouse and we don't have a hoop house. So we direct seed almost everything that we plant is just direct seeded into the ground rather than, you know, starting with seedlings and things like that. He said they do have some cold frames that they use to do a little bit of, you know, pre-starting. But yeah, for the most part, he was like, yeah, our first CSA pickup, you know, and they grow something like uh, 150,000 pounds of food per year that they do through the CSA. And he said their first CSA pickup isn't until June. They just start later. And he said the nice thing about that is because it actually allows him to have time off. So a lot of farmers were always looking at how to extend our growing season on both ends, you know, earlier into the spring and later into the fall to try to maximize, you know, how long we can produce things and expand our income that way, of course. And he said that he just accepts that they're going to have a shorter window. And the trade-off for that is that he then has more time to do things like speak at organic grower school. And I thought that was just really refreshing and a great thing to hear, especially in our first year here on the farm and on the land, because I definitely have a tendency to push myself too hard and try to set goals that just aren't really attainable. You know, thinking about it this way and deciding that it's okay if I don't do everything this first year it's okay if I didn't have everything ready to go. And if I'm starting, you know, direct seeding most things and not, you know, having a hoop house this year and things like that. So it was really a good piece of relief for myself to kind of, Jeff, thank you for letting me off the hook, I guess is what I want to say, because I was really stressing out about it. And not that I don't already have a lot of work to do, but it's nice to know that I'm not really behind. I'm the only one that thinks I'm behind. No one else is saying that. And as usual, I think it's always easy for us to be our own worst critics. So I'm really glad to kind of take a step back from that and get some perspective on it from someone who's been doing this for a really long time and doing it really successfully and really well. So I'm really glad to have had that experience. The main topic I want to talk about today is my experience at Organic Growers School. It was held in North Carolina out at Mars Hill University this year. I went last year and had such a fantastic time, so it was a no-brainer to decide to go this year. I definitely, you know, don't go to a ton of different conferences and things like that. Um, I'm only registered for two this year. The next one is in April, and then it's pretty much just time to buckle down and work. And I have a few weddings to go to for friends this year, and that's it. I can't, you know, I know I can't take a ton of time off from the farm and that I need to be here, you know, putting in the work. But going to these conferences is always so great. It's really invigorating. I always walk away with lots of new ideas and different perspectives. 
not to mention a huge list of books that I want to get and read and things to follow up on. But that's a problem for a different day or nighttime problems, I like to say. Once the outside work is done, then it's time to buckle down and maybe read a book and unwind that way. The thing that was really cool and different about this year for OGS, though, was that I actually knew some people, though I had never met them before. So last year when I went, I was just kind of roaming around. I didn't know anybody. This year, I actually was able to coordinate and meet up with three different people who I knew that were also, you know, farmers and interested in farming from Instagram, Carolyn, Dallas, and Jessica. It was super awesome to meet all three of you and just hang out and eat lunch together and talk about, you know, which class sessions we'd gone to and things like that. The other really fun thing is that I actually ran into my herb teacher, Juliet Blancaspor from Chestnut School of Herbal Medicine. We just happened to pass each other in the stairwell and I, you know, got past her and then was like, oh, I, I think I know this person. So I turned around and, you know, was like, Juliet. And she just kind of looked at me because she's never met me before. I'm an online student. So hopefully she didn't think I was too creepy. She was very, very nice and super sweet. We just had a really quick, you know, hello, hi, one of your students sort of interaction. And then we went our separate ways. We were each headed to different class sessions. But that was just really cool to finally put a face and a name together in real life with someone who, you know, I've watched dozens of hours of instruction and videos from. So that was really, really neat. So OGS is normally two full days of classes on Saturday and Sunday, but they also have an option where you can add a full day workshop on the Friday before that. I didn't do that last year, but I decided to go this year since I could get the time off from work. And in kind of a funny twist of fate, considering what I just spoke about regarding hoop houses and not obsessing over extending my growing season, the one day workshop that I chose to do was on year round growing and using hoop houses to extend your growing season. So, okay, kind of funny. Anyway, this class was really great. It was taught by Pam Dolling and Ira Wallace who are both just really awesome, amazing, knowledgeable people. Ira Wallace wrote the book Vegetable Gardening in the Southeast. She is a master gardener and also um, owns Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, which you should definitely check out if you have not. And Pam Dolling is over at Twin Oaks Community in Central Virginia. They do a CSA for like 100 people on just three and a half acres. She's written two books, um, Sustainable Market Farming and also The Year-Round Hoop House. Anyway, they're both just super knowledgeable, very personable people. It was a really great workshop. I enjoyed hearing both of them speak so much. They also both have a lot of really great online resources. Pam has a blog that you can check out. And also then over on the Southern Exposure website, Ira Wallace's website, there's also a garden planning tool that's really interesting. And I would just check that out if that's of use to you. One of the things I really liked about this full day workshop was just how methodical both of them were in terms of talking about how important good record keeping is. And that's something I've just heard reiterated over and over again from different sources and how that can really make or break you as a farmer. You know, for most of us, we get into this because we love being outdoors. We want to grow plants and you know, be of use to people and things like that. And sometimes the more businessy organizational side of things can kind of get left behind. And so just hearing more and more people stress how important this is and how this can make or break your business model, basically, you know, which a lot of us don't want to think about it. You know, we shy away from thinking about the financial side of things. 
until it's too late sometimes. And we realize, you know, hey, we're not going to make it this year because we didn't keep track of what we were spending and what we were bringing in and things like that. So the attention to detail they had and a lot of the, you know, spreadsheets and worksheets that they were sharing and, and posting up on the PowerPoint and things were just really good tools and definitely a good reminder for me of how important it is to have, you know, really good systems in place, make sure they're easy to use and make sure you're actually using them. And then also that you need to go back and actually review those records in order to make adjustments and changes as you go on through that season and definitely as you're then planning for the next year. A big theme throughout all of OGS, you know, for those three days that I was taking courses, there was a lot of talk about just the importance of building good soil. And Pam and Ira talked about how, you know, one one acre of organic soil can have 2,400 pounds of fungi and 1,500 pounds of bacteria in it. You really need to make sure that you're feeding your soil well, using cover crops to prevent erosion and different cover crops can be used for different things depending on what you're needing to you know, add or balance out in terms of your soil makeup. I'll get into that a little bit more later. I did a specific class this weekend just on, you know, good soil building and things like that. It was pretty rainy that day, but in the morning we were actually able to go outside and walk around in one of the hoop houses that was on the property there at the farm. And Ira did a tool demonstration, which was really useful to me. Um, I definitely struggle off and on with back pain and things like that. And so she was showing off some various tools that she uses. And um, one that I really, really liked was called a scuffle hoe. Ira demonstrated using it and how it's really nice and easy on your back because you don't actually have to use a lot of pressure when you're using it. And so you can just sort of move it back and forth and kind of dance it across the soil in order to weed between your rows and things like that. So that's something I'm definitely going to be investing in. I've already researched that and found some that aren't super expensive but still look like they're good quality. I'm always looking for tips and tricks and better tools in order to save my back and body in general, because this is hard work and I'm in it for the long haul and I'm already pretty old uh, by farming standards, I guess. So I need to make sure that I can keep this up for a long time to come. Pam also did a demonstration of using a soil blocker instead of planting into 1020 flats. And that's something that I'm going to be doing this year here on the farm. I already have my little soil blocker and I'm ready to go. I'm really excited about that. As I mentioned, you know, not using plastic is something that's really important to me. I definitely want to do that throughout the farm, just the same way that we're trying to minimize that in our own household as well. So that's really exciting. It'll also save money in the long run. And I think it's better for the plants too. And it really gives them a chance to develop a more stable, you know, root structure and things like that and reduces the likelihood of them becoming root bound. Since the class was about year round growing, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, utilizing hoop houses and things like that. But my concerns about plastic are definitely still there. And so I'm still kind of torn about whether this is going to be a goal for the farm or not to get a hoop house or kind of what alternatives I might have available to me. Because a lot of these, you know, the plastic that goes around on the outside of them usually has to be replaced every couple of years at a bare minimum. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what sort of alternatives are out there? I know there are people that build, you know, smallish greenhouses out of recycled windows and things like that. And that's something to look into, but those can have issues of their own. So I'm not really sure what to do on that. I think it's definitely something I'm going to have to do a lot more research on. But the upside is it's not something I'm going to stress about this year and worry about. So I'm kind of letting it go out of my head. There was a lot of other really great information, though, from this class, even if you didn't want to do hoop houses necessarily. 
One thing that I was really interested in was when Pam and Ira were talking about doing storage for off season. So especially things like, you know, squashes and things like that. Our house doesn't have any sort of root cellar or basement or just kind of anywhere that's like cooler temperature wise to really do long-term storage. So garlic and onions, sweet potatoes, winter squash. But they talked about doing things like outdoor storage clamps, which are basically you dig a large mound, you put a layer of straw, then the vegetables, then straw over it, and then dirt. And then you dig like a ring around that circular mound as like a drainage ditch. So that's kind of an interesting idea. Though I'm not sure how long that would stay good for, just with the temperatures we have here since we don't get a really, really cold winter. Also talked about doing things like, you know, digging a pit, lining it with a metal trash can, and then doing straw, you know, between the earth and the trash can, a layer of like six to eight inches of straw. That I feel like would maybe be more beneficial um, since it would be below ground. But then we get into issues with like water drainage on our property. So again, something I'm going to research, but definitely got me thinking And our land here is really hilly, um, at least on the back side of it. And so I definitely have had dreams of maybe digging a root cellar into the side of a hill somewhere. Um, I've also joked with people about digging out a little mini cave to use for, you know, fermentation because I love doing sauerkrauts and fermented vegetables and kombuchas and things like that. Uh, They did recommend a really great book called Root Cellaring by Nancy and Mike Bubel. So I'm going to be checking that out and seeing if that is a good resource that would maybe be beneficial for us here on the farm. So all in all, this was a really informative and worthwhile workshop to have gone to, and it was definitely beneficial to come up for that extra day. I feel like I learned a lot, and it was also just nice to kind of slide into the weekend and not hit the ground running Saturday morning doing, you know, class after class, but just having one longer workshop where you're kind of around the same group of people, getting to hear the same speakers talk and really go in depth about different topics too. So moving into the rest of the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, each day you had four hour and a half long classes. And one of the things I do really appreciate about Organic Grower School is that almost all of the classes are repeated on both Saturday and Sunday. So that if you're looking at a specific time slot and you have multiple things that you're interested in taking, you can actually get to at least two of them out of each time slot by taking one Saturday and one Sunday. So I super appreciate that. I I wish more conferences and things would do that. So my first class Saturday had a pretty long title, Challenges and Opportunities Concerning Exotic Invasive Plants in the Southeast United States. And this was taught by Mark Williams, who actually runs botanyeveryday.com. It's also Botany Everyday is a great Facebook group where you can post pictures, get help identifying plants and things like that. He also does this really awesome course on botanyeveryday.com, going through Botany in a Day by Thomas Elpel. It's a really great class. It's completely donation-based, and it actually starts up on March 23rd and runs through December. So he does this, you know, pretty much every year. It's an online course. You don't have to register for it. You just go to the website and check it out, and you can send in via PayPal or snail mail a check to him whatever donation you can come up with. He's got a suggested donation on the website, but again, he doesn't turn anyone away. It's really informative, really great. I want to do the class this year, but in the name of restraint and understanding what I can actually put on my plate, I'm not going to do it this year, or at least that's what I'm telling myself. We'll see if I talk myself into it over the course of the next three days. And if you're listening to this after the 23rd, I think you can jump in at any time and pick back up with the posted videos and classes and things like that. So If you're listening to this after the 23rd, still go check that out. 
His name again is Mark Williams, botanyeveryday.com. He also runs plantsandhealers.org, another great organization you should definitely look into. Anyway, the point of this course was looking at these so-called, you know, invasive plants and what are the other uses? What can we do to turn, you know, turn our problem into a resource, so to speak? Um, One of the things I really like that Mark addressed in the class was this concept of what is and isn't an invasive plant and how it's a pretty arbitrary distinction in terms of what we consider invasive. And we call anything invasive, anything that we don't believe was found here before European colonizers came to the United States, basically. And so it's kind of a very arbitrary distinction and a place to draw a line in the sand in terms of a timeline for that. Anyway, we talked about different potential uses for these plants. And also just the idea that, you know, maybe these plants are here for a reason. Maybe they're thriving for a reason. Japanese knotweed, for example, is something that a lot of folks are thinking might be the the big key to working herbally with Lyme disease, for instance. And, you know, Japanese honeysuckle is considered extremely invasive, but is also, you know, known to be like an antiviral herb. And we use it for, you know, immune support and things like that. You know, just lots of potential. And again, the idea of like, let's turn a problem into a resource. There are folks out in North Carolina and other places around the country that are dealing with kudzu. And, you know, kudzu is edible. People are using it and making flour out of it and using it as a food source. So if it's here, you know, rather than fighting against it, rather than, you know, using chemicals on things to try to get them out of an area, which I definitely, you know, don't want to do why not figure out a way to utilize these plants? Or even if you can't figure out a way to utilize it, at least stop and listen and think, you know, why is this plant here? What purpose is it serving in the ecology? And maybe just understand that there might be things at play that we just don't comprehend. The plants might have a perfectly good reason for being here. And they may have stepped into an ecological niche that just happened to exist because of something else not being here. So it was a really provocative class. I really enjoyed it. It definitely got me thinking as the first class of the day. It got me woken up for the morning. Mark was a great instructor. There was someone there who works for an agency in North Carolina that deals, I guess, with invasive plants. And I think kind of tried to get a little aggressive in terms of questioning the information that Mark was presenting. And I just have to say, like, he dealt with that really graciously and offered to speak with them after class and, you know, tried really hard to not let this person derail the course. So I super appreciated that. And you should definitely go check out his Botany Everyday class if you want to take the course from March through December, or at the very least, go join his Facebook group. It's pretty active and it's a great resource. The second class I took on Saturday was called Wild Simulated Ginseng Production. It was taught by Jim Hamilton. He's the Extension Director for Watauga County out in North Carolina. And he also has a PhD in forestry and is an adjunct instructor at Appalachian State University. And we started off the class um, with a bit of humor where he said the first rule of ginseng club is, you guessed it, don't talk about ginseng club. So kind of funny. I definitely posted that on my social media just to go against that rule. If you've ever thought about growing ginseng, you've probably also thought about the fact that poaching is a big issue. Previously, there were maybe eight or 9,000 diggers in the state of North Carolina that were out there. You know, you have to register when you 
um, sell your plants and show ID and things like that. But then a few years back, some TV shows on like History Channel or something like that kind of went around, you know, through North Carolina and like West Virginia and, you know, put on a television show about, you know, ginseng and, oh yeah, you can make all this money going out and, you know, harvesting wild ginseng and digging up the roots and things like that. And suddenly the number of diggers per year shot up in North Carolina alone to like 17,000. And so obviously that's a huge problem. Um, while ginseng is really endangered. Again, I'll throw a plug in here for you need to check out United Plant Savers and all the great work they're doing. The problem is that, you know, if you find ginseng in the wild and you did want to harvest it sustainably, I would tell you, first of all, don't do it. Just leave that plant alone. It takes seven to 10 years for it to grow to any sort of maturity. It's a very slow growing root. But if you were really dead set on harvesting ginseng in the wild, I would tell you that you don't have to harvest the entire plant. You could dig that plant up and take just a small amount off of the end of the root and then replant the plant and it would continue to grow. But most people, if they're out poaching on land and these aren't, you know, their, you know, quote unquote, I'm putting there in air quotes here. If it's not their plant, they're not thinking about that. They're not caring about the sustainability right now. And they're just ripping that entire plant out of the ground and getting off of your land as quickly as possible because they're trespassing. This is a huge issue, obviously, with sustainability. 10 or 20 years ago, people that were out there harvesting ginseng were a little bit more considerate and they would, you know, think about, hey, I want to be able to come back here at some point and find more plants again to be able to harvest to continue that revenue stream. And so they were more careful with things like, you know, actually getting the seeds, replanting those seeds so that there would be new plants pretty slow growing, like I said, and just the seeds alone, it takes about two years just for those seeds to germinate. You know, we think about things usually in terms of vegetable crops and, you know, you put a seed in the ground, five to 12 days later, you probably have something growing up out of the earth. It takes two years for a ginseng seed to germinate. So it's, it's a slow process for sure. And the bottom line is it's being harvested at a rate that is not sustainable Most of the ginseng in our country is being harvested and then shipped overseas. Usually it's being sold um, over to China. And one of the things they demand in terms of looking at quality is that they want the whole plant. They, They do not want just, you know, part of the root cut off so that the plant can then be replanted. They want that entire plant pulled out of the ground, which means killing the plant and starting over. This was a really interesting class and growing ginseng is something I've thought about doing or not doing since we have a lot of woods around here. But, you know, after hearing about, you know, just learning more about the security issues, which I was already aware of, but just the cost of if you want to actually try to mitigate that, you know, people are out there doing wild simulated ginseng production on, you know, multiple acres, and they're literally paying someone to, you know, ride an ATV around their land at all hours of the day and night to make sure no one's out there poaching. That's just not a life I want to live. So I'm thinking ginseng is probably not in my future. Or at least definitely not on like a commercial basis. Like I might grow a plant or two somewhere out on our acreage just to grow it because I want to make sure it, you know, stays around and doesn't go extinct. But I think at this point, I don't see myself trying to grow it in any sort of way to be used, you know, herbally or to be sold or anything like that. It just seems like a lot of, a lot of potential trouble and not something I want (laughs) want to take on at this point because I have plenty of other projects and trying to grow a plant that needs to grow for, you know, about seven years to hit any level of maturity and knowing that on any 
random night out of those seven years, someone could just kind of come through my property and yank it up and it would be gone. It's like, that's not a basket that I want to put my proverbial eggs into in terms of relying on that for income because that's just too tenuous and I'm not going to have a bunch of large guard dogs running around our property or you know people on ATVs. That just seems so absolutely ridiculous and not the kind of life I want to live. So yeah, I think we're going to give ginseng growing a pass, at least for the foreseeable future. My third class of the day was with Laura Lengnick. She has a company that is a private consulting firm called Cultivating Resilience. And she also has written a book called Resilient Agriculture. And her course or mini class was called Carbon Farming for Climate Resilience. And this was definitely a really interesting class. Not super optimistic, unfortunately. Um, just talking about, you know, the things that drive climate change, obviously agriculture in general, and specifically animal agriculture is a huge driver of climate change the way that we are currently doing it. But the upside is that there's a lot of potential there to change what we were doing. A big part of that has to do with carbon sequestration, which ties back into, you know, the five keys to soil health, which you see talked about in regenerative agriculture and permaculture. And now in terms of quote unquote carbon farming, just different names, different ways of marketing, different strategies, but they're actually pretty darn similar. So kind of the five keys to enhancing soil health and increasing how much carbon you can sequester has to do with decreasing your level of soil disturbance. This is where we talk about no-till or minimal till farming, increasing organic matter in your soil. So good composting um, is a is a key there. Um, Hugelkultur beds and things like that increasing your soil microbe diversity, maintaining continuous living plant cover is a really key way to fight erosion. Again, these are all like major themes that I saw across multiple classes that I took over the course of the conference. And then also the concept of integrating livestock into crop production systems. So right now, we've completely separated these two things, where we have you know, all of this monoculture farming happening where we've got, you know, acres and acres and acres of soy being grown one place, corn being grown another place. And then you have these CAFOs, the commercial animal farming operations that are producing so much runoff, so much environmental damage, not to mention how those animals are being treated in the first place. But looking at how, you know, these monoculture vegetable farms or crop farms their soil is so depleted and it needs so much added to it every year to keep the soil even remotely healthy, which it's really not healthy. But then you also have these CAFOs that have these huge issues of all this manure, all this animal waste with nowhere to go. And it's like they're producing the exact same stuff that this soil on these corn and soy farms actually needs. Not to mention most of that corn and soy is being shipped to feed to those animals. And so the idea is here that why are we not just recombining these things that the animals shouldn't have been taken off the farm in the first place. And that if we just reintegrated them into one system, it would be a lot better um, environmentally in terms of sustainability and in terms of reducing climate change. So I think there's a lot more you could delve into there. There's a really great website. And I think it's also a book right now as well called drawdown. And so drawdown.org talking about, you know, just the different things that are the biggest contributors to climate change and which ones we can actually work on. And so many of the things that they recommend to address climate change come back to our food. So reducing food waste, 
silvopasture, which I talked about just now with reintegrating, you know, animal and crops onto the same land, and then looking at a plant-rich diet, so reducing animal consumption in the first place, are three of the major, you know, out of the top 10 that just tie back into food directly. A lot of the topics I'm talking about today from these different courses and stuff, I think could easily and probably will get turned into their own episodes so that we can delve a little bit deeper into them and talk about potential solutions to these issues. But today I just want to kind of give you an overview of the different things I learned about at Organic Grower School and just keep it there, keep it to a minute or two per class. So we'll keep it moving, but this is definitely something that I would love to talk about more and probably will in a future episode. I also took a Soils 101 course with Mark Dempsey, and this was the first class on Sunday morning. It was really good. It was really interesting. I feel like I didn't come out of that class with a huge bunch of like, aha, like takeaways in terms of things that I need to change, um, because a lot of it was really in line with things I've already talked about in terms of like the five things to do to make sure you have good, healthy soil. But I definitely came out with a much deeper understanding of like what's going on with, with my soil in terms of like actually getting down and talking about like what's happening in terms of like chemistry and electrons and, you know, actual chemical constituents and things like that. So it was pretty nerdy. I really enjoyed it. I took pages and pages of notes that I'm just like looking over and reading about and definitely want to, you know, keep learning more about. I don't think I need to give you guys a chemistry lesson here on the podcast though. Definitely lots of stuff you can look up online if you want to, you know, learn more about this on your own. The big takeaways from this as well as the other classes that I took involving, you know, soil management were just, you know, how important it is to make sure you're getting soil testing done, usually at least on an annual basis, if not more often, you know, between different types of crops and things like that. Also just looking at nutrient management and looking for ways to fix nutrient issues without just adding fertilizers in bulk in there because it's so easy to think you're adding, you know, nitrogen and then you end up, you know, throwing your phosphorus way off a whack because you've overcompensated in one area in an effort to fix another. Also talking about, you know, again, limiting tillage, having live roots at all times, you know, always having something growing in your soil because that really helps you to protect against, you know, erosion and, you know, not losing nutrients and things like that. Again, it was a really useful class. I'm just not going to read you guys five pages of notes with a whole bunch of chemical constituents to it because I don't think you would enjoy that very much. There was a last minute class addition to the schedule um, because someone had to cancel their session. And Jeff Poppin, the barefoot farmer who I spoke about at the beginning of this podcast episode, stepped in and he did a class on biodynamic preps. This was super interesting. It was great to hear more about his story. His farm is out in Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee on 250 acres. They produce 150,000 pounds of produce a year through their CSA. And it was just really cool to hear about this and just get a feel for what they're doing out there and, and the work they're doing. The fact that they're not using any irrigation whatsoever is just really interesting to me because that just speaks to how well they've developed their soil health there, that they're not having to irrigate even in summer in Tennessee pretty incredible. Definitely something I'm interested in learning more about. Also, Trad Cotter was in the room who literally wrote the book on organic mushroom farming and microremediation. So he spoke a little bit about mushrooms and mycelium and the role that that plays in our soil health and just our general you know, health at all in the world because mycelium kind of you know, holds everything together in a lot of ways. So that was super cool. He talked for just a few minutes um, before he had to leave. 
the really interesting thing that Jeff talked about were these biodynamic preps that, that they do on the farm. And these are then used in small homeopathic doses to their compost piles. And so they're really interesting. Um, I had never heard of doing this before. Biodynamic farming is something I've always been interested in, which is the idea that you are planting, harvesting, and growing all of your plants in relationship to what the moon is doing, what the planets are doing, and things like that. Rudolf Steiner is kind of considered like the granddaddy of biodynamics. Uh, and so all of these compost preparations are actually in Steiner's book as well. Um, Jeff full acknowledges that this is not something he came up with. They, this came from Rudolf Steiner's work. And they were really interesting. Some of them are definitely not things I'm going to try because they involve like sewing herbs up into, you know, cow stomachs and burying them and things like that. But there were a couple that were really interesting to me that I wanted to try. And so again, these are taking basically medicinal herbs treating them in some way usually involves burying them for a specific length of time, letting them kind of do their thing in the ground and then unearthing them and then adding them in small homeopathic doses to your compost pile in order to get certain mineral benefits. So again, soil seems to be the theme for like almost every little mini class that I took this weekend at OGS is just all about, you know, building soil and it was super interesting. So one of the ones that he talked about was taking stinging nettle, which is one of my favorite herbs and you're taking the leaves and flowers, putting them inside of a clay tube, sealing the holes up with screens so that animals and stuff can't get into that. And then you're burying it in a pit basically for a year. And, or you can do this in like a clay flower pot as well. And we know that stinging nettle is like really rich in a lot of minerals. And so two of the main things that this is supposed to remediate and assist with in your compost pile is iron and silica. Um, another one was valerian. So this is actually like a ferment. So they'll run valerian flowers through like a wheatgrass juicer and then ferment that liquid. And then you're stirring that for about 20 minutes in water and then sprinkling that on your compost pile. And that's supposed to assist you in remediating phosphorus levels. And then another one was using horsetail or it's sometimes known as lesser horsetail. There are two types out there. And this is also very high in silica and this is fermented. You're basically making... Um, a tea with it. And then you stir that, you know, for about an hour and then spray onto plants directly. So this is not going into your compost pile, but is more of like a compost tea and you're spraying it on plants to ward off different disease. Um, Jeff also spoke about the Southeast Biodynamic Association, which has an annual conference. I think it's in October out at his farm in Red Boiling Springs. So if that is of interest to you, you should check that out. Um, I don't think it was very expensive to go to, so I might do that this year. But all in all, it was just really great to hear him speak. He definitely has a huge you know, wealth of knowledge. And I'm hoping that since he's only about an hour or so down the road from me, that maybe I can get out there and do some more hands-on work out of the farm and just you know learn whatever I can from the people out there. My last session for the weekend was actually a two-part workshop on growing fruit and nut trees. And this was done by Joffrey Steen. This was super interesting to me just from an agroforestry or permaculture level. I definitely want to have a bunch of fruit and nut trees here on the property. Just, you know, more perennial plants is always a good thing in my opinion. It's a great way to build in resilience and food security to have those growing on your property. I'm not going to go into everything we covered during the course. It was great to, you know, see him run through his PowerPoint presentation and talk about the different work that he's done. He's done a lot of experimentation on his property, 
trying to grow different crops in different ways in terms of fruit and nut trees. And he's definitely gotten some really great results. You can tell he's a huge wealth of information. Um, We also talked about some of his favorite books, Mark Shepard, Restoration Agriculture, and Dave Jackie's Coppice Agroforestry. Definitely two books I'm going to be checking out from the library at the very least and seeing if I want to purchase them for my personal library. Um, He had sort of four main things that he talked about. If you're thinking about, you know, planting fruit and nut trees on your property, his four keys to this were one, plant densely, two, prune heavily. So pruning low branches, training them up to grow tall, three, plant unusual trees and fruits. So find, you know, what is native to your area, get chestnuts, hazelnuts, mulberries, uh, juneberries, things like that. And also just trust yourself. If you feel like something's not working out, feel free to make changes. So plant densely, prune heavily, plant unusual things, and trust yourself. Um, I came back with a grafted apple tree from that, which I have planted. So hopefully that takes. This was a really fun class, and he's so energetic and so knowledgeable and just gets really excited about sharing that with people. You can tell he is really passionate about growing all of these trees and just loves it so much. I feel like he probably could have done like an entire weekend long course and not come up for air the entire time and just imparted so much knowledge to everyone there. I think this was definitely one of the most fun classes that I took over the course of the weekend. And I'm really glad that I was able to go to it. So that's again, another year of organic growers school. I had a really great time. And like I said, getting to, you know, meet other people that I know via Instagram, actually getting to meet them in real life is always really nice. And I always come back from these conferences just full of energy with lots of new ideas, a much longer reading list than I will ever have time for, and just big plans for the future. Next episode, I want to talk a little bit more in depth about some of these perennial plants that have been mentioned, as well as a ton of others, and just how that can play into what you're doing with your land in terms of permaculture and agroforestry and just having like a really great food forest and having that great sense of food security in terms of knowing what's going to be available on your land. So I'll be back in two weeks to do that. In the meantime, I hope you are having a great spring equinox, planting those seeds, planning ahead, thinking about what you want to harvest, you know, next fall when it gets here. As always, if you have any questions or comments or want to suggest other possible topics, you can reach me at foxandelder at gmail.com, or you can also find me on Instagram at foxandelder, all one word. Always welcome feedback. Speaking of feedback, um, a few of you have left me ratings and reviews for the podcast. I super appreciate you. Please keep those coming. It helps other people to find the podcast. I definitely want to reach as many other plant lovers and folks as I possibly can. You know, feel free to share the podcast with with anyone that you think would be interested and that would benefit from hearing this. I definitely want to keep growing our community. Until next time, y'all, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.